Novell engineers spend a week not working, and we speak to some of the KDE experts next on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going around and inside the Novell universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. I'm Randy Goddard. So on today's episode, we actually got a chance to sit down and do a recap of Hack Week. Uh, Randy, I know you were involved with Hack Week over in Provo, correct? Right. Dave and I both were. Yeah. And, and what Hack Week was, just kind of bringing everybody up to speed. So Nat took all the engineers that report to him and said, for one week, I want you not to work on the projects that you normally work on. Instead, I want you to go out and fix something in the operating system or work on a pet project that you've got, something cool, something exciting that can really make a difference. And it was really neat to see some of the projects that people worked on, wasn't it, Randy? Yeah, you know, this was a really interesting idea. I don't know Nat's motive behind it, but the the thought of, of being told, hey, don't work on your current projects, you know, don't work on these bugs that you are supposed to work on. Go and find something that's interesting to you, something that that lights the fire un- under your seat, and go work on it. And we actually uh, got some real cool projects that were started, as well as several projects that were actually completed. Let's go ahead and listen to the interview of you, Dave, and I just kind of chatting about those. Let's do. So Hack Week, I had the opportunity, I was actually over in Nuremberg for about two-thirds of the week, and then I got a chance to pop over to Prague for it. Now, Dave, Randy, Mike, you guys were here, weren't you? We were. Yeah. Randy and I did a little bit in the room set aside for Hack Week here in Provo, and we worked on a couple of cool little projects, saw some of the other guys, chewed the fat a little. Did you actually get a project completed, or was it more like exploratory type stuff? I think Dave's is still uh, still in progress. Mine, still a work in progress, yeah. Mine is, has turned into uh, a, a bug with the ntp.org folks, as well no, as back isn't. in our face with the NTP <laughs> guys in, on the Sousa side. So. So, so exactly what was your project? Well, it was basically trying to f- locate the reason why NTPD starts before Network Manager, and of course, if it started before Network Manager, there's no name resolution available, and why NTPD just then sits there and doesn't try to wake up at some interval later to try the network connection again. So did you figure it out? Do you now know why it is done in that way? Well, we found the function call. Yeah, we we uh, found out where it happens. We kind of know why it happens, and it's something that if it's going to be fixed, there's going to be some way in the future. In the meantime, the SUSE guys who are working on the same problem are looking to poke NTPD from the outside once a network manager starts and fix the problem that way. Also, you can restart NTPD after network manager starts. But I think you got to say there's, there's an issue there with network manager. Anything that expects a network to be up but doesn't expect to have to retry is going to have some problems since Network Manager can be one of the last things to start. Real quickly, what's the NTPD stand for? 
Well, I know it's the co- the command call, but what is what protocol is that? Network, Network time protocol. Network time protocol. So, so if we actually step back, sorry, and describe what it is we're talking about, when you define uh, NTP, so you say, you know what, I want my computer to go out, and I want it to check with one of the official time servers, whether that's official at your site or one of the governmentally controlled or whatever sites. Once you define that, it's great if you've got a permanent, always-on Ethernet connection. But if you, you know, sometimes turn on your laptop and it doesn't have a network connection, or, you know, your laptop comes up all the way except for you having to select which wireless network you're on, that's, that's where I we have. run into problems, yeah, that's right? Exactly. The wireless one's the problem I always have with it. Yeah, and NTP just kind of gets hung up because it's going, I can't find this service, I can't find the service, and your machine's incredibly slow. Well, actually, it says, I can't find a network, I'm done. Yeah. And it just sits there waiting. And you got to ask, do you really need your clock on your computer to be synchronized to two microsecond resolution? Yes, I do. I don't know why, but I know I do. <laughs> Man, mine can be just within an hour, and I'm happy. <laughs> okay, Dave, what was your project? I'm ashamed to say that mine was a little TTY terminal, and anyone listening is going to say, not another TTY terminal, why do we need one? I'm a ham radio operator, it's come up a few times here. I actually do 300 baud modem, 300 baud analog modem comms over high frequency shortwave radio, and there isn't a good TTY terminal for COM ports to do that, so I wrote my own. I don't think that I've even heard somebody mention 300 baud. In, <laughs> in fact, you, can I just tell you the flashback that I just had? I remember going from 300 baud to 1200 baud, and you know what the biggest difference was for me to go from 300 to 1200? I found that at 300 baud, I could read as fast as it would come across when you're on a bulletin board. At 1,200, it was going too fast for me to read. You had to pause it. Yeah, I had to pause it from time to time. Well, I'm sending Internet emails over shortwave radio with a 300-baud analog modem, and I need a a client for it. So So why? Why would you just be... (laughs) You're sending email over shortwave. Why not send email over email? all, All of us ham radio guys, we think that... We have the solution to the problem of when the bomb goes off. We're going to still be able to operate. You've seen, uh, what was the movie? Uh, um, the Day After? No, no, it was the uh, the ones where the aliens come down and start blowing up Earth. Uh, Independence Day. Oh, IG4. the one sure we created a Macintosh virus <laughs> to bring down the... Right. Yeah, let's so not get started. radio <laughs> operators, shortwave radio was how they coordinated their attacks. Well, a lot of us hand radio operators think that we're going to be there with some of the last functionality in the event of a big emergency. You and, and the I cockroaches, send, right? Yeah. I can send email from my house out via an email server. I, I'm in Utah. I can send email through a server in Montana without having any physical connection at my house. That's what we're talking about. It's kind of fun for the sake of being technology. So I want to make sure that I understand this right. Geek you and pleasure. a bunch of other ham operators are getting your your justification for your existence and everything is coming from the movie Independence Day and technical <laughs> no, information you no, got out of that it, movie. It demonstrated the point. It demonstrated oh my the God. <laughs> that was I'm sorry, but that's just like one of the worst technical movies ever made and here this is totally like your agree. whole but reason this, for but the coordinating across the world via morse code that bit's good i so wish i had a camera right now aaron's face went so <laughs> red i mean blows my mind it's just that's a frustrating movie you know what it was a fun project and let me tell you what was fun about it i wrote it using the cute library 
version 4.2. Some of you may know it as Qt. So use the Qt library, built it, it compiles for Windows, it compiles on the Macintosh, although I haven't done a lot of work with either of those. It was relatively simple to put together and the result is it just functions and I'm adding more functionality on a daily basis just as ideas come to my mind. Qt's really great for doing that kind of thing. And there honestly wasn't another TTY version out there that you could have used. I could not find one and if you're looking for a comparison, if you're a Windows user, we're talking about something like Hyperterm. I know we're going to get a flood of emails saying you should have tried this one, you should have tried this one. I couldn't find one. It doesn't mean there isn't one out there. I wrote one. I get the joy of learning cute. I get the joy of developing an application that does what I want. So it's not really just about whether or not there's something out there. And that actually really hits on what one of the big goals of Hack Week was. It was there were really two main goals. First was absolutely let let's fix some of these small things that can be hammered out in just a couple of days or a week, or let's at least get people started on fixing some of these small problems that irritate all of us. And the other side of it was to give people an opportunity to go and learn something outside of their normal comfort zone or out of their normal day-to-day. You know, this is something that every one of our listeners can do. A lot of these little projects aren't that complex. Even a lay guy like me can go out and do a little bit of code here and there and come up with something pretty good without too much trouble. And I think that's a lot of what we wanted to show people with Hack Week was anybody can do this if they want. And with open source, you can go out, you can do what you want, you can fix what you want. If you don't like your TTT or TTY terminal, you can go make your own. And, and actually, that really hits on something cool, which is use whatever it is you're good at. When I was over in the Czech Republic, I got a chance to meet with one of the guys who's normally a manager but has quite a bit of an artistic flair to him. So what did he spend his time doing? looking at the partitioner program and figuring out how we can make that screen look better. I mean, that's fantastic, and that's something that I would really like to see. Make partitioner or F-disk, you know, easy to use, be able to look at it and really understand what's going on. If, if you want a great example of how someone used Hack Week to learn something, even though the project itself might seem pointless, that's Coley Lee's A Yas Module to Teach Hackers How to Cook Delicious Chinese Food. I know Coley. I met him at uh, Kernel Developer Training in Prague in May. He's a wonderful guy doing a lot of great stuff with EXT4. Oh, cool. The file system. Yeah. Yep. And he wrote this uh, YAS module to teach you how to cook Chinese food, as I understand Delicious it. Delicious Chinese food. Oh, forgive me, yes. Actually, Is there any other kind? Well, Actually, I think that's fantastic because I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting there building a server or trying to, you know, configure Samba or whatever, and I've gone in the middle of it. Man, if I could only make some moo-moo <laughs> I can right now, I would be set. It's If you don't have a reason, if you don't have something that you need to build, but you do want to get to know how to build YAST modules, then invent something pointless as functionality, but use the development of it to learn how to develop YAST modules. That's really what that one's all about. Yeah, and, and really what Hack Week was about, which solving problems or learning different things. And in my case, Qt, exactly the same point. I, I spend a lot of time learning about the Qt library. Yeah. So let's take a minute to actually talk about some of the other winners that we had. Uh, the one that won the best overall project was actually one of my favorites, and that was the guys who uh, came up with a an idea to add a process to the build service in AutoBuilder to allow you to actually decompile and recompile .debian or .deb files. Recompile them as RPMs probably sounds uh, pretty pointless. I mean, you got devs, you got RPMs. 
why why are you doing this? Actually, I think it's fantastic because there's all the time that I'm out on the internet, I'm finding a cool new package that I want to play with, and it's only built as a .deb, and the guys haven't built it as an RPM. This is going to give you a way to turn it into an RPM. In some respects, it sounds like it's just a mapping task. You have the how the thing is assembled in a .deb. You have to get the files out and reassemble them in an RPM. Sounds that simple, but the guys who are working on it, for them, it's mainly about understanding the Debian build system, and that goes back to the point we were just making, that a lot of this work is, as much as anything, giving people an education about how something they haven't touched before works. Yeah, and actually something else came out of that project. Uh, I did get a chance to chat with them just a little bit when I was over in Germany, and we are going to try to get a dedicated uh, interview with these guys about exactly what they did, but they also explained to me that they found bugs in auto builder that we were not aware of before just because wow. they were pumping so much information through auto builder and were unpackaging so many packages and repackaging them that they wound up logging a bunch of bugs which is fantastic because it made us aware of things that we'd probably run into uh, later on another cool uh, award winner the people's choice award was the uh, test harness for build services for automated testing this one was interesting to me. What kind of people are making this choice? I mean, why not one of the ones on Quake? Uh. <laughs> so we did set up this wiki that we are going to point you to, um, this wiki where people could come up with ideas of things that they wanted done or ideas that they had. People could then say, hey, you know what? I'll take that idea and I'll run with it and I'll work with it. The people that were going to this site were the developers and the people that were coming up with the ideas. So the people that voted on this were developers. And, so, of course, there you're looking one that makes their life a little easier. Exactly. So anything that has to do with testing or Bugzilla, they're like, this is awesome. We had an award for the best uh, cross-pollination team, and this was given to the guys who came up with the phrase that they've got is create a properly integrated solution for directory-based user authentication slash authorization. This is just a... Kerberos style. Well, it's it's something similar to Kerberos or LDAP or something like that, but it's their own implementation. It, they exactly. The, the idea is totally with open source stuff. Mm -hmm. They want the ability for you to authenticate once to a directory service and then use some sort of token or credential that you can then pass on to different applications. Yeah. Very similar to Active Directory or eDirectory, but totally open source. Yeah. The idea here is to make the Linux experience a little more like, for example, the Windows one where you log in and authenticate once and automated authentication happens to new services that you connect to thereafter. But yet have the directory be an open source or an open standards directory. The, the directory is probably in, irrelevant to this one. This is about services in the desktop at the login point, and you gain an identity there. How the, the back end knows your identity is probably something you don't want to make this aware of. Expo you don't want to expose yeah. that to the outside world. Oh, interesting. So we also gave out an award for the best power management project, and actually this thing I absolutely loved. And that was uh, a guy came up with a desktop status awareness. And this was kind of neat. Um, it allows you to, um, you know when you're an IM, how you can say I'm in a meeting now. Away. Or I'm away. Or you've got different levels of um, your availability. I'm in a recording session. I'm in a recording <laughs> session, yeah. He did the same type of thing but for desktop applications. To give you an idea what that means is, when I go in and I kick up OpenOffice and I'm actually in a full screen uh, presentation, 
turn off IM and turn off my email notification so that nothing comes through. But then if I jump into this state that says now I'm in a meeting, well, you know what? When I'm in a meeting, I usually want IMs to come up and I want certain other things to happen. Yeah, because I want the ability to have a distraction go, oh, sorry, guys, something, an emergency came up, I got to pop up. So you're trying to say your meetings are boring, in other words, half Um, the time. Well, no, I'm saying that meetings can be boring and it's nice to have the option to have a reason why you have to frantically and in an emergency leave a meeting. Let me tell you one of the other intents uh, intentions with this project. It's to create a situation where the host knows that the user is idle and use that to take the cycles that are available and go do background tasks, go download messages for evolution, buffer video streams, update packages and install environments. If you've ever done that, it can be kind of irritating when you have a lot of cycles being spent when you're at the console and they're being spent to download packages that you might want to install, updates, that kind of thing. They can be done in the background if the host's in a position to say, no one's there, no one's doing anything. Yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of cool things we can do just knowing whatever the current status is cool. of that machine. I think it's awesome. Oh, and the other thing that uh, he talked about is we could always use that status for saying what type of connection does currently does the user currently have on. You know, definitely when I'm connected via wireless to my actual house uh, WAN connection, there's things that I might want to have happen that I wouldn't want to have happen <laughs> when I'm in a coffee shop. Right between those lines. It's <laughs> <laughs> being vague for a reason, Dave. <laughs> we also had a best uh, QA project, and that was uh, develop PHP libraries for Testopia API. Yeah, so this is kind of, for my point of view, is kind of cool because I do a little bit of web development. And this allows you to uh, send back information through the PHP interface of what's going on within Testopia. So I can go in and uh, put in an API within Bugzilla or whatever application I'm saying to say what stage in testing a project or a component is within Testopia. So it's kind of nice that way for reporting purposes. Okay, so you... And just for the record, testopia is not a disease. <laughs> <laughs> sure sounds like one, though. Okay, best Unix attack project was the Filemon-like system-wide S-Trace, which, those are just words to me. I have no idea. What, Dave, help me out. What does that mean? It's binding language from two platforms. Windows, there used to be a great website called SysInternals where a couple of guys, uh, Mark Rusinovich and I uh, forget the other gentleman's name, these great Windows hackers were producing these great applications for doing things like system-wide monitoring of file access, system-wide monitoring of registry access, system-wide monitoring of COM port access, and a whole host of other things. Microsoft bought uh, the uh, SysInternals organization, and those guys now work at Microsoft. So these great applications, you have similar applications on Linux where you can use S-Trace, to, but you can only look at a single process. You can't look at system-wide access, which processes are accessing the file system, which processes are accessing disk. This is taking the the functionality of something like S-Trace and broadening it it to say, okay, given this this whole host, what file system access is going on? Something that you get with Windows utilities like FileMon. Oh, cool. With the name the best Unix attack project, I'm thinking... What are they doing? Trying to get somebody to write viruses against yeah, Linux or something? I, see, as soon as I heard that, I immediately thought of, you know, again, I'm showing my age, but Satan popped into my mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> friend of yours? <laughs> a friend Actually, of a yes, but that's a whole other story. But it, oh. this, this isn't anything to do with viruses, so that's kind of cool. The best desktop project winner was uh, Giver. 
Randy, you actually got a chance to talk to the guys who developed Giver, didn't you? Yeah, these guys, it started out Calvin Gaysford and Scott Reeves, and I think Travis Hansen was helping out there as well. And uh, later on, it Boyd, Timothy, and Brady Anderson hopped on board with that. This was a little tool similar to an IM session where you could send a person a file. Now, you know, at, at first glance, you'd think, why? Why not just use IM? Well, this is a little utility, a desktop utility that announces your presence via unicast. Okay. to those on your network. And then those that are kind of like in your little favorites list, you know, they, you show up not only just as your name, but you can also configure a little avatar, whether it's your actual face or a, an image otherwise, that shows, hey, this is you. And then instead of having to, you know, choose a person in the list or know an IP address that you can drag and drop something to and say, hey, get, give them this file, you can actually go into the little browser, drag, like, for example, from Conqueror, drag your, your file out of Conqueror onto the face of the person within this little giver program, and poof! I love on, the sound on, of that. On their desktop. <laughs> if you're saying to yourself, why? I don't get it. Instant messaging, you have your buddy list. You have to know who it is you're sharing files with. Yeah. It's not like you can just sit in the office and say, hey, Joe, I don't, you're not in my buddy list, but I need to give you a file. With this, Joe and everyone else in the office, they're all immediately visible to you. If you need to give Joe a file, you just drop the file on Joe's face <laughs> in, in the giver client, and off it goes. So no buddy list required. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I think that Calvin's description was pretty cool where um, he, he said one of the reasons why, why they came up with this is think of how many times you walk into a meeting and it's like, all right, everybody needs to have this spreadsheet. And rather than emailing it out to everybody and letting it churn through the email system, this real easily allowed you to drop the file out and make it available to everybody in the room. Yeah, and along along those lines there, you know, this started out as just this giver project. And then uh, Boyd, Timothy there, and Brady Anderson, they were working on Tomboy. a Tomboy uh, update. And I came in, you know, I had interviewed both Calvin and Scott and Boyd and Brady on, on separate projects the day before. And I came in the next day and they were still all wearing the same clothes that they'd been in the day before. And I asked <laughs> what was going on and they were just hopped up on caffeine and sugar because they'd pulled an all-nighter to integrate Giver with Tomboy Notes. In fact, that, that really brings up one of the cool things that I liked about uh, Hack Week. So one of the things that I thought was really cool is uh, Nat, Garrett, and I went from Nuremberg. We drove to the Czech Republic. We're hanging out in the Czech Republic. And, you know, Nat and Garrett got working on one of their side projects. And when these two guys get cranking, I mean, there's no getting them out of the office. And we finally left at about one thirty. But just in general... 12, 12.30 at night, there were still people hanging out in the office, laughing, having fun. Some people were watching movies. Other people were uh, hacking on their code. It was just cool to see people, you know, in the office late, really having a good time. I got to tell you what that's like, because this cute TTY terminal I've been working on, I've been doing a lot of work up as far as midnight. Usually I quit. But it's one of those things where you know the problem you want to solve, you almost have it solved 
just one more line of code and you'll be there. It's really an exhilarating experience to be working on something like that and know you're close and then get there. It's easy to work way past midnight when you've got that kind of thing going on. It's yeah. a real buzz. Yeah, you just get stoked and you get excited oh, yeah. about working on it. Yeah, in fact, I had to tease Nat because, of course, at like 11.30, he's like, you know what? I need 10 more minutes. And then finally at about 11.30 or at about 1.30, I was finally like, so Nat, those 10 more minutes, they weren't necessarily consecutive, right? It was just <laughs> randomly you needed 10 more minutes. You just couldn't tell me which 10 they were. Yeah. We also had an award for the best uh, L3 support project. So first, one of you guys got to explain to us, what's L3? I am L3. If you come to Novell support... <laughs> if you screw stuff up so bad that you need to get Dave <laughs> on the phone, that's L3? <laughs> that's L3. When you call up Novell for support, the first person you're talking to is L1, frontline support. If the problem is not immediately answerable by them, it escalates to Randy. It escalates to Randy. <laughs> Randy? What, do you, what do you do, Randy? <laughs> well, and then, you know, I, I, I see my job as making the determination between is this problem that customer X is having, is this problem a defect or is it, is it, is it a problem in configuration? And if it's a problem in configuration, then we can, I can figure it out working with development. I can figure it out and get it fixed. But if it's a problem in, as such as a defect, then it goes to Dave. And I'm L3 support, so basically I fix bugs. Well, then you can explain this because um, this is uh, Milan's project, and his project was actually to modify Bugzilla without admin's help. This one I don't think really applies just to Bugzilla. It's more like saying for these web-based applications, there are these little quirks I've either got to go through all the time or are annoying to me that I have to do it, and it's a series of scripts that make it possible to adjust the behavior of that web application from the user side and not from the administrator side. You're not going to have to need a new version of the web-based application. You're going to poke the web-based application from your client in a way that makes it do something more convenient to you. And in this case, Milan has, has applied the, the methodology there specifically to Bugzilla because that's what we use for our bug reporting. That's right. It's where I live. So we also gave out awards for the uh, funniest projects. Uh, we gave out one award to actually, Dave, to your friend who uh, did the YAS module to tell hackers how to uh, create delicious Chinese food. Delicious as in good tasting, nothing to do with the <laughs> delicious service. Um, right. a, another one that I didn't understand, it didn't make sense to me until actually Randy clarified it for me, which is uh, make a screensaver launched on a console. Yeah. Why so. would you want a screensaver on a console? Well, let's say you have a headless server, but yet you log in via TTY1. You know, what's to say that you won't get up and walk away and you, you have some processes running or whatever and you don't want to log out. So you just leave the box or even better, maybe you hit a particular key sequence on the keyboard and a screensaver comes up. And a it's locked so, it screensaver locks this, comes yeah. up. First, you don't get the burn in from, you know, the, the titles and stuff. Yeah. And you also have it locked. The third one. How was, is that funny? <laughs> I guess it depends on what's what the screensaver is displaying. Yeah. Okay. It would be it's interesting to be. see what this one is. Yeah. yeah, I want to see those pictures. The, the other one was for a 3D floor tool. Now, this is funny. In Nuremberg, apparently, there already is a 2D floor tool that allows people to see who's in what's office, where printers are, so on and so forth. 
a couple different people came up with the idea of they wanted to turn this into more of a 3D application so you could actually walk through the halls. And, and when they were playing with this, what they realized is actually the most efficient way to do it was just to use the Quake engine. The and best tools. To, yeah, the, the yeah. best tools for the job. Use the Quake engine. It's already out there. Well, what's so funny is, and you can actually go, again, we're going to point you to the wiki where all these are. You need to go look at the video because <laughs> in the video we actually have a demonstration of this utility. Not only did they build a, a rough outline of the floors in Nuremberg, they actually took a photograph of Nat put it on one of the monsters so at the end of the demo <laughs> you can walk through the walls and shoot at a monster that looks like a, a bug with nat's head on so that was extremely cool yeah and was it randy or dave was before we recorded this came up with the greatest idea that i've heard so at Brainshare, there is this table that has all these games on it's just a gaming booth gaming station a lot of people play unreal tournament. unreal tournament uh Warcraft, World of Warcraft, and the idea is, wouldn't it be cool if we could somehow, if somebody out there in the community would make a map to some of these games based off of the plans of the Salt Palace up there? So you could actually be, during Brainshare, walking through the different and burst in on a session that Dave or Aaron's giving and <laughs> shoot them. Shoot them in cold blood. That is just great. Thank, thanks a lot. I think that's a really good And you just got to love really the, good the idea. places where this kind of technology, this kind of knowledge can take you. You could take a museum with a priceless treasure in it, build a floor plan of it into a 3D model in Quake and figure out how to rob the place. At, at, or or <laughs> virtually stumble, stumble down the stairs and break the 9th century, you know, oriental... Uh, yeah, statue yeah. or vase. What a joy. So that was an overview of the prize winners that we had, but actually there were so many other cool projects. We just want to take a couple minutes here and chat about some of these cool projects that uh, we really liked. You know, first off on our list is the OpenSUSE News Portal. The creator, of course, was Stefan Binner. This, I actually took a look at this this morning, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's a news portal for the OpenSUSE project. And at first glance, when you go in, it, it's basically a wiki. What's new about that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's it's not so much the uh, that it's a wiki, but the what kind of information is being displayed there, the latest and greatest news of the OpenSUSE project, a calendar with iCal extensions so that you can actually pull that into a, a different uh, calendaring program if you wanted to. Um, it's, it's a great place to start off and look at what's upcoming and what's been happening in the OpenSUSE project. And this tells you a lot about what Hack Week is for. It's not really about building new applications using traditional software uh, tools like C. We're not talking about a bunch of programmers sitting down and writing new programs. There's a case where someone built the environment where we can now go and manage information about OpenSUSE project and not have to hack up something on demand whenever there's a new piece of news. Or a static web page. Yeah. So Stefan Binner actually had another cool project that I liked, and that is he came up with a KDE text completion history editor. So think about this for a minute. You know, you're in Conqueror, you type, you mistype a URL, and then it's stored in your history. And then when you try to don't. go, yeah, don't you hate it? Because you try to go to that website again, and the first one it brings up is the mistype URL. Oh. Uh, Let me you tell you how again. annoying that is. Bugzilla, where I live, as I mentioned earlier, I have a bug I'm working on. The bug number is 284602. My keyboard at the office is has a numeric keypad, but the keyboard on the laptop does not. 
So numlock is off. If I press the two key, it's a down arrow. Oh. So <laughs> there I am. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in Bugzilla. I type what I think is a two. I get the down arrow. The highest number in my history list is five eight four six zero two. A bug oh. which doesn't exist. Every day I type in that bug number and get a bug that doesn't exist. Oh. This would let me take that out of that list. It exactly. Let you go into the history and delete individual things instead of, you know, today you'd have to go and clear the entire cache. So I thought that was That's fantastic. Awesome. And, of course, you look at the opportunities to hide what you've been doing. This one is just fabulous. And, <laughs> and again, to me, this really just... <laughs> Dave, is there anything you need to tell uh, HR? <laughs> So your Cress also had another cool one, which was an evolution plugin attachment reminder. So what this does is it sits there and it looks for text inside uh, your email message in evolution. And if you say something like, check out the attached file, or I've enclosed this file, when it sees words that reference an attachment, <laughs> and you go to send the email and you forgot to actually attach the file, oh, it'll wow. pop up a little message that says, hey, um, you're about ready to look like an idiot. <laughs> are you sure you want to do this? Who hasn't done that? So, again, it's one of those just little things that are just real nice and uh, um, would help us out on a daily basis. That says another thing about what Hack Week was. You get a bunch of people who are just being asked to think, hey, if there's something we could fix, if there's something you could do that you've always wanted to do, it forces people into a situation where they think, what would I really like to fix? What would I really like to fix? And that one is a classic in my view. It's one we all live with and tolerate. But there's someone who thought, let's do something about that. Yeah. Two of my favorite projects have to do with media, of course, because I'm a media guy. Sure. So the first one is Pulse Audio Support for Myth TV. And the question is, is why is that kind of cool? Well, Pulse Audio in itself is kind of cool because it's a proxy driver. But how many of you have actually had the experience of having the little alert on your Linux desktop that says, oh, your sound driver's been, or sound device is being used by another program. And, and that, that's because uh, normally only one application can deal with the sound driver at a time? Under ALSA and OSS, I believe only one application can have control of the sound device. Okay. And when you have Amarok or Banshee up, it grabs control of that, and you can't have web streaming services going at the same time. So you can't mix that stuff live. And that's where it normally hits me, is I'll yeah. have Amarok or Banshee up, and then I'll go hit a web page that has video embedded, and I get no sound out of the... Mm -hmm. So this kind of just gives a little bit of an abstraction layer. It allows you to have both playing at once. Another thing cool that Pulse Audio supposedly allows is you can push all that sound off to another machine somewhere else if you want to. Oh. which is kind of fun. Um, has some really interesting connotations for a recording system. Does this mean I can play something on my computer and make it sound like it's coming from someone else's? So I can play, uh, Aaron can play his punk music, but make it look like me that's uh, playing or, it. Or better yet, Dave, I can play my thump and bump, oomch, 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 oh. and patch it over to, to Dave. Home. Oh. <laughs> I'll get so, Randy. <laughs> I honestly have no idea how all that works, but that's kind of what, I understood the project to be, so it's kind of cool. The other one is some people were working on a framework for adding multimedia uh, codexes. Now, the codexes are what allow you to encode and decode different media types. So right now, OpenSUSE doesn't ship with a lot of the common codexes for licensing reasons, and this allows you to dynamically add them into this layer for quick adding 
of codexes, depending on which ones you're using. Yeah, I actually got a chance to talk with those guys when I was over in Nuremberg, and it is neat. Their whole idea is the way they want systems to work is if you go and you try to open up a file that requires a codex that you don't have, wouldn't it be nice if it just popped up a little box and said, you don't have this codex, would you like me to go check some known sources to see if I can find that for you, download it, and plug it in? That would be awesome. Novell doesn't endorse the use of unlicensed codecs. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. <laughs> now, we can't get out of here, Aaron, without mentioning, I think, one of my favorites as well is Yast as a web service. Yeah. Oh, I actually got to see a demo of that. Did you? I did love it. This, I mean, tell me if I understand this correctly, then. Is, is this basically uh, making it so we don't have to do SSH-X anymore to go into a, a box and change anything in YAS? Yeah, that, that's kind of the idea. Now, what he showed me was very, very early on in the code, and it's not getting the pretty YAS menus or anything. We're just talking, you know, low level, being able to see what services are running on the box, being able to go in. You know, a, as an example, we can look at run levels. Within YAS, to be able to go into that screen, see what services are running, be able to start and stop services. Oh, the run level editor. Yeah, okay. exactly. So exposing individual YAST modules directly to a web service. So like you said, through a web browser. You That's can awesome. So Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think in his video demo video, he actually goes in there. He stops a KDE session shuts it completely down, shuts X completely down, changes the session to a GNOME session and then reboots up this whole machine into GNOME from a web internet browser Yeah, page. now, Randy, you mentioned earlier about sending thump and bump music to Dave's computer remotely. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, that was pretty cool and annoying, but imagine killing his <laughs> GNOME session and turning it into KDE on him. I mean, whole nother level of practical jokes here. First, he'd have to change it to GNOME. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I, Dave's a KDE guy, aren't you? I'm afraid so. Well, you it. get the idea. <laughs> okay, Aaron, my favorite... Because it's intended to use open source to save the children of America. Dance Dance Revolution, DDR. Yes. <laughs> Support forces of Linux. Yeah. And you just got to love this because you've seen those stories that DDR is making a difference to the health of children in America. Now open source is contributing to the health of children in America by giving them away to exercise using Linux and open source software. you got to love it. Right on. We're saving the world here. So that was a good overview of just uh, some of the cool Hack Week projects that uh, actually were completed during Hack Week. There's a whole bunch of additional projects that were completed as well as many of them that are going to be ongoing projects that people are going to work on on the side for the next year or so. Um, again, we're going to post the URL so that people can go check out for themselves and see all the work that was done and all the cool projects that we worked on during Hack Week. And I think we need to say to all of the creators of all of these projects, to all of the people that worked on us on them, thanks for the fun you gave us talking about them. Thanks for the great ideas. Thanks for the great work. Yeah, and, and for guys who are actually involved in it, um, I don't know about you guys, but I loved it. I mean, I it was just the it energy awesome. and everything. It was so much fun. It yeah. was one of the, it, I can honestly say it was one of the best weeks that I've had working at Novell. And you know what? There was a lot of mixing going on amongst the ideas. I was in there. Randy was in there with guys like Brady and Boyd. And they were talking about the problem they had with some feature or another. And I was able to, to contribute because we were all there in the same location. I contributed nothing of major value to their project, but it was a chance to brainstorm. Yeah. It's a lot of fun.
So Aaron, you were over in Nuremberg talking with our KDE developers over there. What was this like? Tell me tell me what it's about. Well, so uh, it's funny. I, I was over there for Hack Week, and we figured, you know, since we had an opportunity, we had to sit down and talk to the KDE guys. Luckily, I got a chance to bring in a coworker of mine, Doc Hodges, who is a KDE fanatic. So it was real nice and a great opportunity for Doc and I to sit down and really grill him on what's happening with the new version of KDE. Now, I do have to tell you one funny thing about the interview. The guy's name is Will Stevenson. And he's British, and he's over in Europe. So it just happens to be that, of course, one of my favorite authors is Neil Stevenson, the guy who wrote Cryptonomicon. So for the entire interview, every time I looked over at him, I called him Neil. And uh, we I can't tell you how many times we had to stop the recording and paste in the name Will. <laughs> but let's go ahead and roll that and take a listen. Hi, this is Aaron Quill, and today Doc Hodges and I are in Nuremberg talking to Will Stevenson, a software engineer who works on KDE for us. Will, hi, how are you? Hi, Aaron, I'm great, thanks. It's a rainy day, but we're having a great time here during Hack Week. Yeah, I should mention we are actually out here in Nuremberg for Hack Week, and we just wanted to take a second to pull Will away from his uh, Hack Week work to get a quick update on exactly what's happening with KDE 4. So, Will, we're really happy to have you here today. KDE is near and dear to so many people's hearts. And I remember when we first met Nat, when we first uh, got involved with Nat, he advised us not to get involved in the desktop wars, not to pick a desktop. And sure enough, we all did anyway. Uh, So I'm a big fan of KDE. And I remember two years ago uh, when 3.5 was first released, they were already talking about 4. So you've got a big, long lead in. Everybody's all excited about it. So why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, are you going to hit your target for delivery? Uh, we hope so. I mean, it's a target which has only actually been realized quite recently when we've actually had a release plan. But we're now aiming for a target uh, sometime during October, and uh, things are looking good. The uh, contributions to the project are really increasing, and uh, I think we're going to make that target. That's great news. You say we in, in the new age where we have to separate the we novel and the we community. How many people in the corporal sense are working on uh, the KDE project? Well, we have uh, five members on the actual KDE team, um, but then there are a number of other teams which contribute in one way to another because their interests overlap with KDE Desktop. So when I had a quick look on the on the wiki before I came out here, I think I counted 16 people. Only 16? For such a big, complicated thing. Yeah, I mean, KDE is a, a really community project, I think, for Novell. So we take the, the uh, point of view that we take the best things we can and we make them that bit better, more polished, and we package them well and we integrate them well into the distribution. Now i got a quick question. Since you say uh, roughly an October release, is that going to be in the 10.3 release of OpenSUSE? Is that the goal? No, that won't make the, the cut for the 10.3 because that will be frozen by then. Um, we will have a, a beta version packaged onto the distribution as part of the packages, um, and that will be an option that you can run either in the 3.5 release or you can run a KD4 desktop if you really want to live on the bleeding edge. 
Okay, but, but I, I could take the beta and then always update it once it's finally posted. Yeah, in fact, there are people out there who are doing that now. They're using Alpha 5. Now it's the most current beta at the time of this interview, and they're using that with the KD4 packages, which are there on the build service and in the distribution. So a, a, a desktop like KDE or a desktop infrastructure, I guess would be more accurate, um, is just a lot more, I guess, than we think about, those of us that use it and, and are responsible for developing it. I guess there's infrastructure pieces that the users don't see, and then all the cool applications and applets and things like that that you do see. And they're both going through big changes. So can you tell us what's going on on the infrastructure side, maybe the part that we won't see so directly? If your listeners have been on the Internet over the past couple of years, they've probably been seeing a stream of KD4 articles in the press, and they're probably thinking, well, you know, it's taking its time coming. And part of it is down just the amount of that infrastructure. I had a quick look on our subversion server before I came over to this interview, and I saw that we actually made the branch for KD4 on the 26th of June 2005, so that's nearly two years ago now. And that's been a long-time development. Since then, we've had 250,000 commits to the code base. 250,000, all done by hand. One not little, entirely. One little honest. keystroke no, at a time. Not one keystroke <laughs> at a time. There, there are some things like uh, translation updates, ah. but uh, the majority of them are from real people, mm-hmm. yeah. And we've got a lot of infrastructure. We decided with KD4, we, there are two approaches you could take to uh, making a, a, a major revision of a project like this. You can um, take the incremental approach and change small pieces a piece at a time, uh, keep compatibility, and then at some point you decide, okay, it's ready, and we're going to put it out there. And we took the opposite approach for KD4. We decided that KDE is a, it's a 10-year-old project. KD3... Uh, is five years old pretty much this year and a lot of things in that time frame which were developed and we thought okay we can take what we've got it's good but we can make it a bit better and we decided to do that by drawing a line under KDE 3 by taking the, the, the functionality but revising those features revising the libraries revising the platform and not trying to go for direct compatibility between a KDE 3 program and the KDE 4 libraries so that means that when we put out 10.3, there will be KD3 and KD4 on the desktop, but there will be, in effect, two desktops with the same name. So should you want to run a KD3 application, you can do that. It will be running in your KD4 session or vice versa, KD4 application running under KD3 because that's what most people, I think, with 10.3 are going to do. But they'll be using each version of the desktop's own versions of the libraries. So one of the stated goals of the project is for to have more code and more speed at the same time. If, if you're running both 3 and 4 at the same time, will you be able to maintain that speed? I think so. I mean, the two versions of the desktop will work independently of one another. And the actual footprint of both of them is actually quite small. We looked at uh, KD3. We measured it for uh, SLED 10. We actually found that the footprint of a, of a stripped-down KD desktop was smaller than that of the OpenSUSE updater applet. Oh, cool. cool. <laughs> which should be near and dear to many of our uh, listeners' hearts. Anyway, but uh, yeah, performance has has been one of the features for KD4. So when you look at a pure KD4 setup, it's actually going to be a lot less code. And you you mentioned before the the platform work. One of the things we've been doing for those two years, and probably for for the most of the majority of that time, has been going through those platforms going through those APIs and just really looking at every function with a very critical eye and saying, do we need this? Is it clear enough? Is it good enough? Can we do without it? So we've actually taken that out and thrown quite a lot of code away, and that makes for a leaner, meaner, 
easier to develop against code platform. So it really wasn't a re-architecture then. Instead, you're just kind of looking over exactly what you've got now, looking over all the code, making sure that it's as efficient as possible, trimming it when possible to just get it as lean and mean as possible, right? That's certainly true of the, of the core libraries. That's certainly true. And um, we have got new architecture around that. For example, uh, the Phonon system. Now, uh, Doc, I know you've got this <laughs> off pat, so I'm going to let you uh, explain what a Phonon is. Yeah, when, on the wiki side, a Phonon is the name of a quasi-particle in quantum mechanics that describes a quantized note of vibration in a solid. There will be a test later, kids, you, so you, pay attention. You had to look that up? <laughs> I did. Dude, you could have just asked me. I uh, would have told you that. <laughs> what can oh, I say? oh, yeah, I knew that off the top of my head. <laughs> So so it has something to do with sound, and I assume in KDE it has something to do with sound also. Yeah, not just sound, but also video. It's our multimedia framework for KDE 4. And the, the thinking was that in KDE 3 we were very successful with the arts architecture, but KDE is such a, a long-lived project, its, its lifespan actually exceeds that of single infrastructure items. So we found that the arts back-end, it was unmaintained towards the end of the KD3 cycle, so we said we weren't going to fall into that trap again. So Phonon abstracts that, and it has engines, which are the backends which provide those multimedia services, but Phonon stays the same, which means for an application developer, you don't have to take bets on KD deciding to change its, its uh, multimedia infrastructure five years down the line or so. So if it, if it runs with a common uh, backend now, like a G-Streamer, um, it'll still run with G-Streamer, but if it can talk to Phonon... They can do that too? That's right. So if we, um, at some point, there's some Project X sound architecture, we can take that and we can replace GStreamer. And the application authors just don't notice the difference. And those are good, high-quality, clean APIs, easy to write great programs with. And they even do things like introduce things which the, the backends maybe haven't thought about. So seamless networking, that's in there. So you can now take a phone on application and even if the backend doesn't know about streaming, you can stream data into that backend across the network in the same way that KDE has been having network transparency in all of its apps. You also have it in your multimedia. So, oh, so my app doesn't actually know that it's being streamed to? It thinks that it has access to the entire file the whole time? That's right. The same way as it would do with a virtual file system with, uh, say, a FTP or a FISH uh, URL in Conqueror. So oh, a VLC cool. application, like today, I think uh, a lot of us use VLC for network-based multimedia and streaming stuff, so it would actually be easier to set up than that. Yep, yep, definitely. Uh, that's related. exciting. A lot of possibilities there. And there, there's some other stuff um, on our list like solid, which is, I guess, a little more abstract. Can you tell us what solid means? Well, solid, again, it's one of the things that's probably going to stir a uh, application developer's team more than end users, but we hope that the result is going to be a lot of good apps. Uh, solid, as you might uh, guess from the name, is to do with hardware. So what that is, it's an abstraction around things like HAL, around things like Network Manager, around the Bluetooth APIs, and that means that application developers, they have one consistent API to talk to all these different backends. Uh, if they change their libraries, the application developer doesn't have to know about that, and they just get good, clean access so they can do things, discover hardware, they can react to, uh, to networking events. One of the things I've been working on has been offline mode, which uses Network Manager on SUSE, but uh, say if another KDE using distribution wants to use that, they can use whatever networking infra infrastructure they have, and then all their applications, they know if the desktop is online, and they can react and they can adjust themselves to changing network conditions. Detecting things offline, that's actually your Hack Week project, isn't it? And that's what I've been working on this week so far. Um, had a couple of late nights on that, but uh, <laughs> I think it's working. Is, is that going to be finished this week? I think, yeah. Excellent. 
Yeah, I'm already looking, thinking about some things I could do the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like to hear. We'll, we'll keep that under wraps until after Hack Week. All right. So, so solid is a is a, a more consistent way or more reliable way to represent hardware yeah. up to the KD for the developers. But, yeah, because if you look at something like if you, the the Hull libraries, the good libraries, you look at uh, BlueZ on Bluetooth, you look at Network Manager, they're all discrete sets of libraries. And they all have their own little ways of doing things. Wrap them all under solid, mm-hmm. and uh, they all look a lot the same. They're a lot, lot more similar, and they're a lot easier to program against. So it, it's like a hardware abstraction layer that that's right. Can hit. Cool. It's an abstraction of a hardware abstraction layer. <laughs> I, I don't know who came up with this, but someone actually has a T-shirt on uh, on one of the T-shirt sites which says "KDE abstracted by abstraction library." <laughs> <laughs> that's so would that be two X abstraction or abstraction squared? Something, one or the other. I think probably probably two times abstraction. Excellent. you got to love that. And then the other one I can hardly pronounce is called Striggy. Striggy, that's right. Excellent. What does Striggy do? Striggy is uh, it's a metadata system and an indexing system. Um, so when you have all your files on, this, on the operating system, if you have all your documents, uh, if you have your installed applications, uh, Striggy is going to be looking through there, indexing those, making them easy to search, making it easy to access and view the metadata of those applications. So if you're browsing those applications, metadata is, is visible in a consistent way. It's all very user-friendly. So it does indexing like Beagle, but then it goes farther? What it does, the, the indexing function is functionally pretty similar to Beagle, but it talks to a, a semantic backend called Nepomuk. And semantics is the study of the relationship and the meaning of, of uh, actions. And what that does is that uh, means that you could, for example, uh, look at an email and then say, okay, show me all the other files that have been sent to me by this person. Because as you've been receiving those emails and saving the attachments, uh, Striggy has been silently behind your back making a note mm-hmm. of where that all came from and linking that all together. And then you could say, go to your address book, and you could look at a person. I could say, look at Aaron. I'd say, open audio. And then maybe view all the files related to the open audio project. And then also say, oh, yeah, Doc, he's also in the open audio. And then link back to the address book. So it's just a, a way of keeping all the relations between things, mm-hmm. not in your head, but on the computer, because as we get more and more things on those big hard disks, it's hard for us to keep track of. Indeed. And it, I noticed on the wiki there's a lot of talk about uh, context. Does the context of my application and my work get fed from this system as well? That's right, yeah. You can do things like set up projects that are specific to, to particular contexts that you might be working on at one time. So when Aaron goes into goof-off mode, it'll automatically bring his games and things up. And when he goes back into work mode, if, if he ever goes back into mm-hmm. work mode, it'll bring his work things back up? What, when have you seen me play games? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'll have to give you that one. I'll have to make a note of that one. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So I could just slip into game mode. I think I would like that. Now, just I, I just have one quick question on the metadata. Where and how is it storing the metadata? Does it have like a database? That's right. The metadata is stored in a, in a database backend. I think a SQLite. Okay. Low footprint, uh, efficient way to store data. As far as the user is concerned, it's just magic. So, And I know the, the thing that you're particularly working on is the, uh, the personal information manager, the PIM applications in KD. Can you tell us how those are going to change? Ooh, ears, ears perk up. That's, that's my, my personal area, yeah. Well, in, in case of PIM, the, in, the improvements have been more incremental. We've been taking what we've done and we've made it better. So what we've done is we've introduced a new storage system for our, uh, our personal information. And that means it's going to be very lightweight, much better performance when it comes to accessing your personal information. 
uh, as by way of example, in KD3, if you, uh, if you have your address book, you can access your address book from Kmail. You can access it from Copita, the instant messenger. You can access it, see, from Conqueror. Uh, there are applets on the taskbar. Each one of those would actually be running a library inside the process that would be loading in some data. And if you come and try and load a very large address book, say, for example, the Novell Groupwise address book, you probably know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly your system slows to a crawl because all those applets are all trying to load in 10,000 uh, names and addresses from the Novell address book. And that isn't the best way to go about things. It worked fine five years ago when we were thinking about one user with his personal address book on his disk, but it doesn't scale. So with Akinadi, that goes into a separate process. All the logic, all the management for all those different groups of data, your mails, your calendar items, your contacts, uh, your instant messaging logs, they're all running under under the hood in one separate process uh, Mm -hmm. with a consistent way to access them. And that brings really good benefits for a desktop designer because that means that a PIM application can be written very, very skinny, very lean. It means it's responsive, fast to start up, and all the work is happening in one place. and it's not duplicated across mm-hmm. those different applications. Are, are you doing anything to make it easy to sync stuff in and out of that database? The uh, OpenSync framework you may be familiar with, Yeah, that's a, a cross-desktop effort to solve the syncing problem. And starting at the back end of the KD3 timeframe, we, we moved our syncing framework to OpenSync. And that is now also going to talk to Akinadi. So it would be possible by setting up a, a sync group in OpenSync, uh, sync onto your phone from Akinadi, or even do something crazy like syncing a KDE laptop to a GNOME laptop running Evolution Data Server. I feel like I'm learning a new language. So is, is Akinadi going to talk to Striggy? That's true, yeah. <laughs> that was a wild guess, wasn't <laughs> it, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that in plain English. Yeah. <laughs> that means as your emails come in, they're going to be stored on disk, and then the KD system is going to look at those emails and analyze them and make a note of when they came in and who they came from. And all that contextual data and those relations is going to be there in the system. So rather than you having to say, okay, I have an email in my folder, open audio, saying, Will, let's, uh, let's, let's have a talk about this and uh, let's have an appointment, you'll be able to just say, okay, We'll go to the view of the Open Audio KDE project, and we'll see that email, that Will Stevenson, who's he, and the calendar appointment that we put in our uh, groupware system. So those are the sorts of things that are going on in the architecture. And i got to tell you, if you've got a great architecture, it makes it a lot easier to deliver all things the user wants to see. So on the the visible side, what sort of uh, uh, visual goodies will we get for waiting the two years? Well, this is is where I think it's going to be most interesting for most listeners there. You think we've been doing this for two years, and probably 18 months of that has just been back-end, hammering on those libraries and making them good. But once we've done that, and that's, those, those libraries are now pretty much frozen, we're seeing a phenomenal pace of, of innovation there and of development in the user-visible areas. Cool, like icons and things that wiggle and wobble. That's and- right. Um, Plasma and oxygen are the next two buzzwords on my list. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of both of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been using plasma. Uh, so uh, the, the, uh, the idea with plasma and oxygen is to provide a really nice, fresh, new user interface. So we've got oxygen icons. They're a, a new set of icons, new look and feel. They, they're really detailed, and they're, they're produced by professional designers. That's going to give us a real fresh crisp, professional look, and maybe get away from the cartooniness that some people have uh, have seen in KD icons of the past. 
And that would be similar to what's happened with the Tango icons on GNOME? That's right, yeah. We, um, actually, we've moved closer to the Tango icon set in that we're using a, a much more similar color palette, which means that if you mix and match, things are going to look better together. Um, we also use the same icon naming theme, which means that you can load one set of icons onto the desktop without problems. Excellent. And now, so that was Oxygen. What was Plasma? Plasma is, is where you're going to see oxygen. And we have a, a, a phrase where I come from uh, in England that uh, if you do a, a cheap makeover or something, it's like putting a lipstick on a pig. Lipstick on a pig. You have that one too. Uh, doc, <laughs> no, we doc, do. Yeah. So I put lipstick <laughs> on a pig, but that's another story. <laughs> so uh, what we decided to do with K84 was not just go for a, a superficial makeover. So with Plasma, we have a, a completely different uh, way to, to actually draw the desktop. So you might be used to your desktop as being a kind of a view onto onto a folder somewhere on your di- on your disk. Mm-hmm. And what Plasma does is that that throws that away, and it means that you've got instead of a view onto files, you've just got useful objects, which are items, which are entities, which are of use to you in your daily work. So you could have some files on your desktop. Uh, you could have some applets. You could have uh, notifiers, uh, things that would be in a system tray. And they're all there, and they're drawn by Plasma. And that means that they're scalable. They're drawn using scalable graphics mm-hmm. uh, rather than just using uh, widgets and uh, the traditional ways to draw a desktop. So we think you'll see a big change in, in the look and feel of the desktop between prior versions of KDE and other operating systems and uh, KDE 4. So r- rather than just saving a document, I could just squeeze it down to icon size and leave it as a document on the desktop. Yeah, I mean, drag and drop's always been something very popular. That's going to mean that, that you'd, you would say, if you wanted to uh, add a, a picture to your desktop and maybe personalize your desktop and put, make it into a little gallery with some snapshots of your kids, you could go into your photo management application, say Digicam, drag those pictures onto the desktop, and they would all become like little framed pictures scattered across the desktop. Cool. How about window management? I mean, we've seen a lot of updates in GNOME over the past two years for window management. I'd imagine you guys have great stuff planned. Yeah. Now, um, what we've done with window management is um, we've uh, been using KWIN for the past, I think, let me think, since KDE2, which is like eight years ago. And we had a big decision because KWIN is uh, a very functional window manager. It, it really puts a lot of effort into managing windows, making your interaction between the user and the windowing system very intuitive and very easy. So uh, things like um, snap-to-grid um, window placement, um, we've had for ages. Um, it's not something we think about, and it's something that our users are very used to. But with the advent of the um, the desktop effects and the 3D desktop and projects like Compits, um, the actual visual look of the window management manager became a little bit old-fashioned. So we had a hard decision to make, and what we thought was you know, we could go and adopt Compits, we could um, take Compits and integrate it better into KD Desktop, but we took a, a very um, a very rational approach to that, and Lubos Luniak, who's uh, one of the developers on our team uh, in the Prague office, he's responsible for driving this, and what he did was he actually looked at the size of the code uh, in, in KWIN, and he looked at the size of the Compits code, and he saw that most of the code was actually in those functional aspects of KWIN, Oh, cool. Compared to the, the, the amount of eye candy in, in Compits. So we thought, okay, the rational thing to do is to bring the eye candy to KWIN rather than vice versa. What we'll having is that can bring Comp is to KWIN, so we'll be able to do some of those cool things 
in KD that we do in, in GNOME now? That's right, yeah. We've got the visual effects are in the new version of Kwin, which is called Kwin Composite. Similar things, you know, you've got your cubes, you've got your expose-like effects, you've got your appear effects like Flame. Um, but they're all running around the same functional window management code base that we know and love. And that's very mature code. We know it works well and it stays the same. And it also means that if you're on an older machine, if you're uh, on your laptop and you want to like maximize your battery life, you don't have to bother with switching window manager or something. You can just turn off the effects and the code stays the same. So I'll be able to spin my cube in KDE. That's right. Would that be cube with a K? <laughs> Could well be. Uh, yeah. We might be onto something here. So I, I want to make sure I understand that. So you will be able to run components of Compiz then? No, they're, they're functionally equivalent. Okay. That's with the the, the Compiz code base, the way its plugins work, they very tightly integrated with the core of Compiz. So it's it wouldn't be feasible to run Compiz plugins on a KD setting. But um, as we said, we looked at the size of the code and to actually implement those plugins, once you have the compositing, the OpenGL integration in the main application, Doing the effects isn't that hard, and we're seeing a, a community forming around KWIN of guys who are into OpenGL who are making those, those applications, those plugins for KWIN now. And that's good fun. It just means you have a nice window management which does what you need, uh, and it looks good while doing it. And if you don't want it, you can turn it off, and you still have all the features. Yeah, eye candy is very important these days. We see some operating systems that provide nothing but eye candy. But that's another story as well. Yeah, so one of the things, uh, when we're getting ready for our talk here, I noticed Will kept rolling his eyes at all the things I didn't know about KDE. One of the things I didn't know is that you can do the famous spin the cube thing in the current version of KDE. Can you tell us how that works, Will? That's right. For KDE 3, um, we're using Compits. Uh, that is well integrated. There is a, a KDE-style uh, window decorator, so it, it fits in well with the KDE look and feel. Um, and uh, my, my tip is to go to our excellent SuperDuce documentation. Chapter 2, Section 6, has a whole section on which uh, changes you need to make, which package needs to, in to install, and how you would uh, activate desktop effects. And then you've got the full range of Compits plugins, so spinning the desktop and everything That's else. That's grand. And Aaron, I think you just told me to read the documentation. Uh, RTFM is what I think he said. <laughs> politely and we'll go ahead and we'll put a link in there so in the show notes absolutely one of our old favorites in the uh in the kd corral is conquer i understand conquer has got a, a new friend and some new features too so tell us about conquer and dolphin well conquer we've had since kd2 now and it really is a, a swiss army knife it does everything it's a, it's a file manager it's a web browser it's a it's a file viewer um and it does all of that very well, but we, we did know, get some feedback from some of our newer users that all those functions could be a little bit daunting. So what we've done is we've introduced for KD4, as an option alongside Conqueror, we also have Dolphin. And Dolphin is a specialized file manager, which is uh, dedicated to one task and doing that real well. And that means we can do file management simply, but also powerfully. Mm -hmm. And that's been, been developed as a, a, a new program. But what it does is it uses the uh, the Conqueror internals behind, so a lot of the proven code is still there, shared with with Conqueror. Mm -hmm. So small footprint for the whole desktop, not too much in memory, nice snappy responsive desktop, and that's all been uh, designed with the help of usability pro professionals and uh, usability testing. That's one of the things that that uh, KD has really benefited from since uh, Novell's been part of SUSE because we've had access to those kind of usability professionals and they've helped us in many areas. So the human interface people that find more effective ways for regular people, maybe it, not the most technical people to use things. You're leveraging all the stuff that we learned from the Better Desktop Org stuff, right? 
Yeah, betterdesktop.org and openusability.org are two projects which have been uh, highly influential. And we looked at KDE 3. We uh, did the kickoff menu for SUSE 10.2, and that was all done using uh, using in-house Navel uh, usability experts, and uh, with feedback from from users, from people on the street, and that's I think has come up with a very useful menu interface. Cool. But uh, Conquer itself, that time hasn't stood still there. Um, we've also improved the HTML engine in that um, due to uh, the use of KHTML in in, in WebKit and Safari. We've got a lot of benefits come back into that code base, and um, we've done our own development as well, things like uh, a compiled JavaScript engine to get really fast JavaScript on the browser for all those Web 2.0 apps. What's KHTML? I've never heard that before. You've never heard of KHTML? It's Uh maybe one of our more successful exports. It's a, a, um, a web renderer and JavaScript engine. So like Gecko on Firefox, uh-huh. it was developed for KDE 2.0, and uh, it's a library, and it's been used um, by Apple in Safari. It's been used by Nokia. Oh, it's a library. I thought it was some new protocol that I wasn't familiar with. No, no, it's, okay. it's the name of our HTML rendering component. Okay, cool. So the, the Conquer things always always amaze me. One of my favorite Linux four mag- magazines is 40 things you can do with Conquer that you didn't know you could do. And it's, it just keeps unfolding new things. So we're always excited to see new things in Conqueror. Yeah, and we're trying to make that actually a lot easier to discover those new things. And um, when we looked at the help system in KD3, we had like a, a very hierarchical one point of entry help system. And for KD4, we're going for things like uh, what's this help where, where you can get a tooltip. If you hesitate, hover a little bit longer, you've got to watch this. And that's got a little button which will open the relevant section of the help. So to go from a particular user interface element, say a taskbar, uh, to going to the help for that and then seeing, oh, look, I can split my conquer window and I can lock one pane to a particular website and the other pane will change. So I click on the links on the first pane. They're mm-hmm. no longer going to be like black magic restricted to the, uh, the inner circle of KDE power users. Yeah. Neat. That's one of my favorite things is splitting the window and, and locking one while I roam in the other. Wow, I haven't seen that. You're going to have to physically show that I to me. I will physically show that to you right after this program. I, I have one quick question, which is uh, you mentioned that I've got a choice between uh, Dolphin and Conquer. So I assume I can use Dolphin to kind of manage the, the file view, and then Conquer still does all the other features that it normally does, right? Yeah, you can. You could use uh, Dolphin for your file management. You can use Conquer as your web browser. Um, you could uh, use uh, another browser if you wanted. KDE is always very component component oriented, and you can uh, select other browsers. But you could use Dolphin, say. You could use Firefox. Uh, you could use Ocular for your file viewing, which is another new KDE four program, which is for viewing documents like PDF and for presentations and the like. How far along is some of this stuff? Is this stuff that we might be able to grab some screen captures of? You can you can grab all this stuff yesterday. Oh, excellent. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do is uh, we'll actually take a little bit of time and we'll grab some screen captures and get them posted up to the Novell Open Audio site so people can see some of these enhancements that we're talking about. Look forward to helping you with that. All right, and the current version that's uh, available for download is? Yeah, the current version that, that's uh, available now is Alpha 2. Um, as of uh, the week of the uh, 30th of June into July, uh, Academy, the KDE conference is happening, and there's going to be an Alpha 2 release around the same time as that. Great fun. So, mm. so, and it's relatively usable? Or are we asking for it if we go do that? 
You're asking for You're it. Asking for it. It's an alpha. That's why it's alpha. <laughs> Beta means you should look at it. Alpha is you put it on the second box, install it, and just kind of get a feel for it. Excellent. This is what teenage kids are for. I'll put it on my kids' machines. Well, you don't have to do that. If you want to, you can try it out. We've maybe shown how, how important KDE is to the OpenSUSE community. We've got, I think, an OpenSUSE questionnaire showed that uh, 72% of OpenSUSE users uh, download KDE and use KDE. On the other hand, Novell is, is very important to uh, KDE itself. And hopefully by describing all these features, I, I've uh, shown how, how KDE is very important and dear to OpenSUSE users. The other way around, Novell is, is very important to KDE. Um, as we said before, we're the, the biggest signal contributor in terms of manpower and uh, guys on the team to the KDE project in terms of employees. One of the things that we've done there has been that packaging effort. So we've had guys all the way through the life cycle of KDE4, even before it was an alpha. We've been using the OpenSUSE build service. We've been producing packages. Mm-hmm. People have been using those. So there's really no need. If you want to try it out, you don't need a second computer. It will install in parallel with a KDE3 installation, and it won't mess Excellent. it up. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So, so i got to say, to be honest with you, that's one of my favorite things about Linux. I love the fact that I can install GNOME, I can install now KDE 3.5 and 4.0 all at the same time and just log in, log out, switch in between them. Uh, I, I love that I can change the interface that easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, choice is just such a wonderful thing that Linux brings to you. And we wanted to leave you with a special nugget. As I was digging around getting ready for our discussion day, I noticed that the the, the wiki actually mentions uh, cross-platform releases of KDE4. So tell us what will be possible in a cross-platform environment. So starting with KDE4, KDE applications will be available both for the Windows and the Mac platform. Um, before you think that's insane, how could anyone want to compete <laughs> with, 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 with their native look and feel? We're not trying to replace the whole desktop that you see in that case. It's the applications. So those applications will run on those operating systems. They will use a native widget set. They will look consistent with those applications. And they will use the infrastructure because all that abstraction that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that means that your KD applications are through solid, going to be able to talk to the hardware system, subsystems on Windows machine. They are, through Phonon, going to be able to talk to the multimedia backend on a Mac, and you're going to be able to use things, really interesting KD applications, like, for example, example Amarok. So, that's, so if, I'm, if I'm running on my Linux machine, um, I talk to the multimedia, and when I'm running in the Macintosh, it uses the Macintosh backend multimedia because Phonon is doing that for me. Yep, Macintosh Core wow. Audio is going to be the back end of these KDE applications. That's and hopefully fun. that is going to show a lot of users what the power of free software is, and it's going to bring more users to Linux. So i got a question on that. I mean, I mean that's fantastic and it gets me real excited, but I've heard this before about cross-platform capabilities, not, not from KDE, but what always seems to happen is, yeah, theoretically it's possible, but you're running into this huge packaging problem where what type of binary am I going to have on Linux? Is that same binary going to have the ability to run on top of the Windows platform, or is it up to the developer now to have to compile the thing for Linux, for Windows, and for Macintosh? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, the, these are native binaries that would be used. Emulation and compatibility, if you don't have a choice... It's one way to do it. It works well for some Windows applications on Linux. Um, if you have a choice, if you have a backend which will, will use the native things, which can be compiled native things, do that one. It's really not that hard to uh, compile a binary for a platform and make that available. 
Okay. So developers will have an easy way to compile it specifically so that it's native on all the different platforms. So like as an example for Amarok, that means when I go to download it, there will be a Windows version of Amarok and then a separate binary that's the Macintosh or the Linux version of Amarok. That's right, yeah. Cool. And, and QT4 supports is the back end that makes all those things compatible. That's right, yeah, and it, it really does integrate great, very nicely with that. One of the big things we always look forward to at Novell is brain share that comes around. I understand that uh, the KDE community has their own event, the Academy, which is happening right about the time that we're doing this recording. Um, and I'd also like you to, to branch off and tell us about Novell's specific contributions uh, in the SUSE environment. Yeah, so um, Academy is, uh, is in Glasgow, Scotland this year. Um, hoping that I will have had a really good time and made a lot of contributions. Novell is sponsoring Academy this year. It has been a sponsor for a few years now. And uh, again, they're a silver sponsor. And that's going to make it for a lot of high bandwidth quality interaction. Um, most of the KDE team from Nuremberg and uh, from the Czech Republic are, are going to Academy. Um, we're going to work a few days and really meet all our, our collaborators that we normally only get together with electronically. And there, are, as well as that, there are plenty of other ways in which Novell really contributes. I mean, um, Dirk Muller, um, anyone in the KD community knows Dirk. He's really made developing KD4 so much better this year, this time around, because we've got a dashboard system now, and that is just a Christmas tree that a developer can look at and see where is it breaking, at a glance view, what's broken, what needs fixing, and that keeps the whole development process moving further forwards. Kulo, he's been instrumental in the library cleanups. He's uh, been around since the project started, and he's been going through those libraries and really with the depth of knowledge that he's got, seeing what's used and what can be thrown out. Stefan Binner, he's our main packager. He's been making sure that those KD packages that are there in the build service, they don't, uh, they don't conflict with anything KD3-based. Users can take those and try them out now. If you've got the bandwidth and you've got the time, pick it up and play with it. Things like the live CD, the one CD install, he's been real busy working on those. And also we've got people, uh, Lubosch in the Czech Republic, KWIN, uh, mobile devices team, they've been working on things like KPowerSave um, and KNetwork Manager. I also contribute to that. Akonadi, GroupWise integration. I was showing Doc earlier that it is possible to use Copita to talk to a GroupWise server. Uh, that was a, a Novell contribution. No, I, I'm not familiar. What, what was that? Cop Copita? Copita is also known as Copit. Okay. Uh, it's the Cadian's messenger, and its name comes from the Chilean word for a small glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's a, a little friendly drink among friends, is, is, ah. a, is a carpenter. Oh, neat name. So uh, it allows for multiple backends then? That's right. It's, it was, um, it's been around for, whoa, five years now, and it's a multi-protocol instant messenger. Um, and we, I think we were one of the first instant messengers to really put the person first in communicating. So really have a person-centric view, not worry about which protocol you're using, and have you know uh, an IRC way to contact the person or ICQ or Jabba or GroupWise. Great. Now that's handy these days. So you, you've always got you know, friends on different platforms, and it's really hard to keep several messengers running at the same time. Yeah, and like I say, this is a project we started in 2002. It's a, it's a mature project. It's well integrated in the rest of the system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of fun to hack on. I've got it running now, as a matter of fact. So we've really done a, a big whirlwind uh, tour of the KDE, and uh, I'm really pleased with all the good information. Yeah, Will, thanks a lot for sitting down and talking to us today. It's been really great to speak to you. I look forward to doing it again. Ditto. Take care.
And that wraps up this episode of Novell Open Audio. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember, most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your requests and comments by leaving them at novell.com slash open audio or by emailing us at openaudio at novell.com. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time. 